you who is the living and the listening God today. We thank you that you are present amongst us. We thank you that even as we've been singing songs, we've been able to articulate words that that put into words uh, the feelings of our heart. And we've declared today that you are our God. We are your people. And we count that as an enormous blessing and a privilege, not only that you've called us to be your people, but here in our country we have the freedom and the capacity to praise you, to meet like this, to unpack your scriptures in freedom, without fear of the authorities around about us, without being shut down, without being cancelled, without being being put aside. Lord, we're thankful for that freedom. And even as we think about that, we pray today for places in our world where believers are meeting in secret, where believers are meeting under threat of persecution, where believers are not able to meet at all. And we pray that your spirit would be strong, would be present in those places. Lord, we're mindful today too of uh, this being a significant day in the calendar, Mother's Day. We're mindful that in some senses in our world it's been picked up by uh, the, the commercial interests and turned into something that perhaps uh, misses the import of the day. And so today we pause and give you thanks for the gift of mothers, just as we also give you thanks for the gift of fathers, for the important role that you have ordained that mothers play in the life and and in the uh, function of families, in the life and function of children, in bringing up children in the ways of the Lord. We thank you for our mothers. We thank you for mothers we're gathered with here and mothers everywhere. And we pray today too, of course, for those who have lost their mums, for those who long for relationship with their mother, but it's just not possible for various reasons. Lord, in this world of brokenness and strife, we recognise that the impact of sin is felt in all sorts of places, including in our most intimate relationships. And so we pray today that you would bring healing in those places and that you would bring life where perhaps there has not been life. And Lord, as we continue to explore the Psalms today, as we will in just a few moments, open our ears and our hearts to what your Spirit is saying, we pray. We thank you that we are able to ground our teaching firmly in the Word of God and can do so without fear or favour. We thank you, Lord, that we have Bibles in our hands, we have access to your Word, we have access to all sorts of tools to help understand your Word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to meet together in small groups with other people on our own, in the quietness of our study, in the quietness of our devotion. And so this morning we pray that you'll continue to speak to us as we unpack yet another important passage of Scripture. So Lord, bless this time, bless the people that we are with, those on our left, those on our right, those in front of us, those behind us. We may, we may not know them, Lord. But we're thankful that you've called us to be part of a family. And so we pray that you'll help us to express the unity and the joy that there is in being part of this community, a community that is reflected across the world, has been called by you to serve you and advance your kingdom. Lord God, we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we are going to uh, mix things up a little bit this morning. We're going to go to our scripture and we're going to read Psalm 51. We've been doing a series in the book of Psalms and it's my privilege today to actually do the first of the, se- uh, the first in this series that I've done. Uh, up to this point, we've done quite a few Psalms and Matt's been the one who's been blessed to do most of the preaching from the Psalms and that's come about for a couple of reasons. First of all, because... Um, I asked him to design the series for me and so he kind of nominated some that he wanted to do but also because uh, at night time he said I don't really want to do some of those topics you can do them (laughs) and so that's kind of how it's worked out but today we're going to have a look at Psalm 51 and I'm going to encourage you to stand up with me for a few moments because we're going to read the psalm I'm not uh, normally in the habit of me reading and you being passive but today we're going to enact the way the psalm was actually meant to be. We're not going to sing it together because um, that wouldn't go well. Um, But I do invite you to stand. The the words will be on the screen. We're going to read it together. So I will lead you and say the words with me um, so that uh, you might actually grab hold of some of the concepts of this psalm as we go through. So let's stand. Uh, Make sure you can see past the person in front of you so that you can see the screen. If you've got your Bible, you're welcome to use the text that you have. Your words may be its slight variation to what we've got on the screen. Uh, psalm 51 is a psalm of David. It's a psalm that was penned <coughs> or recited by David after the prophet Nathan had come to him and I'll talk about the context in a few moments but let's read this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Thank you. You may have a seat. Like I said a moment ago, the Psalms were never meant to be read to you. They were meant to be sung. They were not meant to be unpacked and exegeted. They were meant to be part of people's worship. And so it was good to do that as part of our worship. As I was reading this psalm, I was thinking back this week, and this may sound unrelated, but it actually is related, to 1988, the bicentennial year. That's a while ago. And I was thinking at the time, what can I do as a, as a young person who was not at that stage married? I was living in Rosedale down in Gippsland uh, with an elderly couple. What can I do to contribute to the bicentennial year? What significant thing could I contribute that will perhaps outlast me? And so I decided to build our dining room table. Now you might be thinking, well, that's a little bit of an unusual thing to do. Uh, and it probably was in some senses. But I got wind that particular year of the fact that they demolished the old Fremantle wool store over in Fremantle. And some of the timber had been brought across on the train, uh, had been dressed, which means basically put through a, a thicknesser, had been denailed and was being sold for $14.50 a metre. Now that was an astronomical figure in those days, 1988. But it was Jarrah. And there were timbers that were nine inches by two inches or about 100 and something, however many, so 280 millimetres by 50 millimetres. So big pieces of timber. And I so wanted to do uh, the dining table out of this timber. And so I went across to the place that was selling it and they had it all stacked up there. And I spent ages selecting the boards, the planks that I was going to use to build my dining room table. And I raided my bank account and pretty much drained everything I had so that I could take some of this timber back to Rosedale with me. And there I put it in the old wool shed that I was using down there as my workshop at the time. And for weeks, as I thought about how am I going to design this, I poured over these planks. I had them laid out on, uh, not on the classing table, I wasn't allowed to use that, um, but I had them laid out on benches in there and I kept changing them around. And some nights after work, I'd just go over there and I'd rub my hands on the timber. And anyone who's actually dealt with timber will know what I'm talking about. I would actually get down and I would inhale the heady aroma of this jarrah that had been in the wool store for over 100 years and was probably cut from trees that were over 100 years old. So timber that was something in excess of 200 years, very appropriate for the bicentennial year, I thought. And then I started to cut them and the sawdust aroma filled the shed. It kind of mingled beautifully with the aroma of uh, sheep manure, but, <laughs> but it did kind of overwhelm even the sheep manure. And then when I started planing them, uh, there were shavings and the colour of the wood and the nuances of the grain. It was just this beautiful, rich experience. And many times I would go over uh, there and just, just, just to touch the wood and feel its weight and run my hand on that lustrous kind of finished. Now some of you are probably going to sleep at this point, but that's okay. There is, there is a place I'm getting to in talking about this. As it, as it turned out, I did the, all the drilling, I clamped them together, I sanded it all up and, and you know, some days would just be kind of saturated with, uh, with this jarrah dust. Uh, 
it was just a, a wonderful blessing to be able to play with the marks and the holes and the grain. And even today, 30 years later, I still sit at that table sometimes and I look at it and I say, what an experience it was to build that table. And hopefully it will outlast me. One of the great advantages of it actually is, and it was a byproduct that I had not considered, uh, people have said to me, you realise this table actually helps you cyclone-proof your house? because it's so heavy that if a cyclone did come along, your house would never move. <laughs> Such is the weight that there is in that table. It was like dealing with something dynamic, something alive almost, even though the timber was probably close to 200 years old. Now compare that to the very utilitarian flat pack that you might buy from one of those bulk stores. Um, I sit at one of those when I'm working here. It's a, it's a, a piece of furniture that's fundamentally useful, but terribly boring. It's flat from this end to that end. There's no warp, there's no weft, there's no turns, there's no twists. There's no, it's got grain, but it's fake. And it's colour is kind of, and, and I've never yet uh, in my office, I've never leant forward and, gosh, that desk smells nice. Quite the opposite, actually. And those things come in cardboard boxes, which if you think about them are kind of at the, the end of the food chain in terms of, you know, once there was a living tree and now there's just a cardboard box that gets chucked away. Um, there's some good stuff available in that furniture and it serves a very important purpose. And look, let's be honest, it's probably more affordable than solid wood. But despite all the obvious benefits, there's something stark and lifeless about, about that, isn't there? You put some flowers on it or a vase on it or something uh, to try and dress it up. And you don't, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever, with that furniture that we have, and I've never come back and said, gosh, that's a nice piece of furniture. It's just stuff. Doesn't invite you to engage with it, doesn't invite you to run your hand over it, and doesn't embrace any of your senses other than perhaps the sense of sight. Now, you might really be wondering at this point, where on earth am I going today? But don't worry, I've done this before. Um, we came, you'll be thinking, to hear a message from the book of Psalms. Uh, specifically Psalm 51, and here's David on one of his soapboxes, albeit a solid timber soapbox, um, talking about something that can't have a spiritual application. Well, actually, I think there is a very, very powerful spiritual application that can be made from this illustration, and it's this. God invites us into a relationship which is rich and dynamic and complicated and wonderful and embraces all of the senses, invites us to use our bodies and our minds and our emotions in all aspects of relationship with him. And yet so often, I think we end up settling for the flat pack version of relationship. That relationship that we have with God that kind of gets us through, um, that serves a purpose in so much as uh, we can be pretty confident that when we die we'll go and be with him, but beyond that um, seems pretty dull at times. 
If you've been a Christian as I have for some years, no doubt, you will have heard the message of the gospel uh, from lots and lots of different angles presented in lots of different forms. You've probably, like me, been told that we should delight in the Lord and we're supposed to do that and in your delight go and share that with others because it is the most strategic, the most important message that you could ever give and when we come together to give thanks to God, we come here uh, sometimes from contexts that have not necessarily been all that happy I don't know your family's experience. Ours wasn't quite like this, but lots of families I talk to, they reckon the worst times in terms of their kids' behaviour is when? Sunday morning just before church. They get here having had all sorts of strife on the way in the car, and as soon as they get out of the car, they've got to put on the happy smiling faces because that's what you do at church, isn't it? Because everyone else is happy and smiling, so therefore I need to be as well. And when we come together, we sing praises and thanks to God, songs of adoration and praise, and we smile and we enjoy ourselves. But do you feel anything? That's a question that sits a bit like a coiled up snake on a table, doesn't it? Who wants to reach out and grab that one? I remember a time some years ago I was wrestling with this exact question, looking to God for a deeper and more meaningful experience of his presence. I went into this place where I was praying and was just asking the Lord, is this as good as it's going to get? Is this that I've experienced so far all that there is? Surely there needs to be more. I'd been taught from a very young age to read my Bible regularly and pray, and that's the usual medication that's prescribed for people who are crying out to God for a deeper and more meaningful experience. Just read your Bible and pray, you know, you'll get there. And those things are great and useful, but can also become kind of just a part of the routine. And I'd read my Bible too. I'd seen stories of people like Moses who spoke to God as if talking face to face with a friend. And I asked the question, if that was Moses' experience, why isn't it our experience? Has God somehow become more removed from us? Has God withdrawn when in fact all of the evidence of the scripture would actually say that God has revealed himself in greater detail through Christ to us and yet our experience seems to be uh, less than it was for characters like Moses. Should I, and here's the question I had to ask and, and I'm sure some of you have asked and perhaps even as I articulate may realise you've asked, should I just lower my expectations and kind of live with the flat pack version and be satisfied with that? It wasn't a crisis of faith that I was having, it was a crisis of experience, I think, and it's not hard to live with convictions about God. We Westerners are good at living with convictions, aren't we? We, we rationalise everything to the nth degree. We can figure out our creeds and our statements of faith and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but in some respects, we're at risk of reducing faith to a series of propositions, which makes faith a very dry kind of experience, living our lives without meaningful or fulfilling uh, experience of God in relationship, which is meant to be complex and complicated and rich and wonderful, just like that big dining room table was with all of its nuances and twists and turns. And that's why the book of Psalms in our scripture is so, so important. 
because in the Psalms we have a living instruction manual for us to know how to have intimacy with God because the Psalms express joy and gratitude and they contain litanies of complaint and cries of desolation, uh, supplication to satiate needs, rage at injustice, delight in goodness, lament in the context of hardship, grief in the face of loss, assurance in the steadfastness of God and celebration uh, in the face of God's bounteous mercy. It's the whole shooting match, if you like, of experience that there is with God. It's the whole menu available to us, if you like. And as I said at the start of the message, these psalms were not given to be uh, unpacked in a methodical kind of a way, read and studied, yes, but ultimately they were given to seeing and to give, give language to the things that we're experiencing, to put words and emotion into our worship so that uh, we might experience the authentic relationship that God wants for us because the Psalms describe authentic relationship. Because if, uh, if we're to describe an authentic relationship with God, it's a complex relationship. It's uh, one which is rich in the same way that a relationship between a husband and wife ought to be rich and complex. There's all sorts of things that we discover along the way that we discover about God as we read through these Psalms. This would have been a great intro to the series, actually. But let's move to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 actually picks up some of what I want to talk about uh, this morning in that very line uh, and has a very well-known backstory, um, a story that we'll visit before um, just one element of application from the psalm today. For those of you who are not super familiar with the scriptures, uh, the story uh, of Psalm 51 has its roots back in the book of 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and it's a reasonably well known story. Let's rehearse that one uh, so that we actually capture what it is that David says in this psalm. 2 Samuel chapter 11 starts off with, uh, with a rather interesting statement which says um, it was springtime when kings would go off to war. I find that statement rather interesting because clearly in ancient times there were some rules to warfare that we don't observe nowadays. Or at the very least, there was some military pragmatism that meant that they didn't go off to war in winter when it was too jolly hard to, uh, to stay alive in the field. As it turns out, it was springtime when kings would go off to war and David sent Joab, the commander of his fighting men, uh, across towards uh, current day Amman, the city of um, Rabbah, about kilometres, and this is interesting, about 650 kilometres from Jerusalem. So quite a bit of distance. The Israelite fighting men went over to uh, the city of Rabbah, modern day Amman, to fight the Ammonites. They'd had some victories and they were besieging the city uh, there in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David, however, for reasons that we don't know, and there's been lots of speculation about this, and the speculation is largely uh, superfluous because we just don't know, uh, David wasn't with his fighting men. 
it could have been uh, that uh, because of the distance, he didn't want to leave Jerusalem. He was the king. It would have taken quite a bit of time. He needed to do his kingly thing in Jerusalem. Uh, it could have been for whatever reason. We don't know. Uh, but for whatever reason, David was back in Jerusalem. And during his recreational time, during his evening time, he would walk around the roof of the palace. Not an unusual thing for a king to do, I should imagine. And neither for us, if we happen to have a house with a roof on it that you could walk around on. Now, I don't do that on my place and you probably shouldn't do it on your place because they're not built quite the way they were. But in Jerusalem, uh, it was not unusual, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you'll understand this, for buildings to be built, best way to describe it, as kind of cheek by jowl, one next to another and one on top of another. And so, as David was walking around, as the scripture tells us, he happened to see a woman bathing uh, on the roof of her place, Bathsheba, we know her name. Now, that in itself is not a problem, because we all face temptation. The problem that David has was not that he saw Bathsheba bathing, it was the fact that he actually took a second look. And his second look uh, informed him that she was a very beautiful woman. As the scripture tells us, she was just coming towards the end of her time of purification. A very important point, because that actually has been inserted there by the author to tell us that Bathsheba could not possibly have been pregnant. David said to her, uh, sent messages to her, come on up to the palace, and she did. So she was complicit in this um, duplicitous kind of relationship that they had. Uh, they had sexual relationship, and wouldn't you know it, she fell pregnant. And so David had a problem. An adulterous relationship had resulted in a pregnancy. What to do? And so David uh, took um, action, as we know from the uh, scriptures that ended up being uh, somewhat unfortunate. Uh, he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get her husband to come home. When he's home, surely they will have sexual intercourse. Then I can kind of pass the, the pregnancy off as, as, uh, as his, not mine. The scripture tells us Uriah came home, the husband of Bathsheba. He was a man who had significantly more honour than David did and said, you know what, while my troops are out in the field, I'm not going to indulge in the pleasures of the flesh, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. He refused to go home and sleep with his wife. He slept outside on the footsteps and uh, refused to uh, engage in David's plot. He wasn't aware of a plot, of course, um, but David was thwarted in his plans to kind of hide the sin that had been committed. Unfortunately for David, um, Uriah's lack of cooperation meant that he took the plot to the next step and he sent messages to Job and Uriah back to the front, look, put Uriah where it's dangerous, get him knocked over, uh, and then my problems will be solved. And to cut a long story short, that's pretty much what happened. Uriah was killed in battle. Bathsheba came up to the palace and lived with David and so far as we know uh, was there for at least nine months, a year or so before anything else kind of happened in the story. That's an important fact too. There was some time that David was living uh, with Bathsheba. She gave birth to a son. And then Rather interesting, the story takes an interesting twist because in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Lord commissioned Nathan the prophet to go and confront David. Now, who would like to have been in Nathan's shoes? 
Go and confront the king. The, the, I can't think of a functional equivalent. What would it be like to go and confront the Prime Minister or confront the Premier or something like that? Some, some years ago I did happen to have an occasion where I spoke to the Premier of our state, this is going back a while, so it was another Premier, um, and expressed my disappointment with him and his party as they were uh, very happy to take money from the gambling lobby and so perpetuate some of the laws around gambling that I thought were a little bit, well, very disadvantageous to people who struggle with gambling. So it was hard work talking to the Premier about that stuff. You know, you feel anxious in that space. How would you like to be Nathan going to the King who had the absolute power over life and death? And Nathan took a rather interesting um, direction here. He, he came uh, to the king and rather than just telling the king straight out, this is what you've done wrong, Nathan used a strategy that I think is brilliant. He used a parable. It's one of the few parables that we have in the Old Testament. And it's a lovely parable. Imagine the scene as Nathan spoke. David is sitting on his throne. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing. Nothing except one little ewe lamb that he'd brought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Do you feel yourself being drawn into the story? It's a bit like some of those movies that I really don't like. Um, it's, you know, the kind where um, the, the first, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes is this beautiful family, you know, the husband and the wife, and they've got the little girl, and uh, they do the domestic thing, and it's, it's a wonderful life they have, and, and they're having breakfast together, and she's eating her cocoa loops or whatever they are, and, and you get drawn into the story. You make an emotional connection with the family, but hiding out behind the curtain, which should have been shut, um, are Russian gangsters. And you know that things are going to go sour. And you know, because you have been sucked into this story, that things are going to go sour for this family, for, for the wife and the daughter in particular. I hate being manipulated by movies like that. You're kind of, they're predictable in a way. Let's just put that aside because... King David, I guess, uh, he, he was drawn right into this story and you can understand why. This is the man, the king, who is supposed to administer justice. The king who is supposed to make sure that there is mercy uh, demonstrated in his rule. He's the king who's supposed to look after the poor and the, uh, and the fatherless, the outsiders. That's his commission. And so he's been drawn into this story. And uh, King David uh, was sitting on the edge of his seat when Nathan continued by saying, Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle and pre to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. What's going to happen here? Well, we know uh, from the text what we would expect. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. I don't know how he said it. I imagine if I was writing the screenplay, it'd be like, you are that man. But it probably wasn't. It was enough to say, you are that man because 
David knew straight away he was that man. Would have been electric, wouldn't it, to have been there? It's a great scene and it could have ended badly for Nathan but for one thing and that is that David acknowledged that Nathan was right. I think the scripture would give us a pretty strong clue that David's crime had actually been eating away at his heart. Because if we have a look at Psalm 51 verse 3, we'll find there this line, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David's been chewed up inside over what's happened. And then David articulates some stunning words in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, and they are words that are reflected in Psalm 51, verse 4. Perhaps the greatest admission of culpability and an admission or an acknowledgement of reality that we'll find in the Bible where David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Not I have sinned against Uriah, though he had. Not I have sinned against uh, Bathsheba, though he had. Not that I've sinned against the people that I'm supposed to be the one that administers justice to, though he had. But that I have sinned against the Lord. What an amazing statement. And this is ultimately the nature of sin, isn't it? Other people are affected by our actions and our sinfulness, but in the end, our sin is a rebellion against God. It was William Carey, the great Baptist missionary pioneer who was known to have asked to have this psalm as the psalm that was to be used as the text for his funeral sermon. That's rather an interesting psalm to choose, isn't it? I haven't, for any morbid reasons, given a lot of thought to which psalm or which scripture I might have at my funeral, whenever that is, hopefully a good while away yet. Um, but would you choose this one? It might not be the immediately obvious choice, but if you wanted a passage that articulated some of the supreme qualities of God's character, then this is the one to choose, isn't it? Even if you just chose the first, the first verse, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. What wonderful statements there are in that uh, about God's character. His mercy his loving assistance to the people who are in need, his loving kindness, this ongoing application of his mercy, his great compassion, his empathy for those of us who struggle with our infirmity. And then if we jump around in the psalm, we find some other great theological themes that can be traced through the entire scripture, themes that are actually worked out in the person of Christ. And chief amongst these, of course, is this idea that reconciliation and regeneration and cleansing from sin is ultimately always and only a work of God. It's not something that we can do ourselves. It's never based on our merit, on our good works or our efforts. Have a look at verse 7, for instance. David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Who's doing that work? It's God that's doing that work. And if you jump to verse 10, a very interesting statement here. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create. That word create is actually used somewhere else in the Bible. Guess where? Genesis chapter 1, 
It's the same Hebrew word as used there, create. In Genesis, that word bara, create, means creation out of nothing. God created without pre-existing materials. Here, that same word is used, which means essentially create in me a, a clean heart. God is doing that work. It's God who does it completely. We can't do it ourselves. We're hopeless at it. David knew that. We know that. And David articulates a truth which is consistent across both the Old and the New Testament, and that is that from the very earliest of times, God has been focused on faith that is evidenced by a transformed heart rather than the trappings of outward religion. If you back up, if you do have a Bible there uh, or access, have a look at um, Psalm 50, which is the psalm immediately before the one that we're reading. That's probably the most glaringly obvious statement I've made today. <laughs> verse 6 oh, sorry verse 9 this is the Lord speaking I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine if I were hungry I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats it's rhetorical isn't it God says, I don't need those things. What I want is a transformed heart. And in verse, sorry, in Psalm 51, David actually says these words, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't, do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. So there's some major theological themes running through this psalm. No wonder William Carey chose it as a text for his funeral. But perhaps the most interesting and significant if we are wanting to talk about an intimate relationship with God is this. It's the theme of reconciliation. Now when I say that, when I say the theme of reconciliation, we immediately think about the joy, the theme, the idea of reconciliation with God, which is a wonderful form of reconciliation. But there is another form of reconciliation that we see at work in this psalm, and that is David's reconciliation with reality. Just think about that for a moment. It might sound like a strange thing to say, but perhaps one of the most dominant themes running through the Psalms as a whole, if we take all 150 of them, is this idea of people exposing themselves to their harshest realities, of being reconciled with reality. In other words, recognising just how awful their situation is apart from God. And when we read the Psalms without understanding that, we read some stuff there that looks plainly disappointing or filled with grief or downright depressing because all we're hearing is negative expressions of grief. But actually, it's the opposite if you read it through this lens. They are actually expressions of a heart which has been woken up to the reality of its own situation. And that's certainly the case uh, with David. And you'll find with pretty much all of the Psalms, the Psalms of lament, the Psalms that actually articulate that grief and loss and disappointment, they end with hope because the heart first needs to be reconciled with reality before being able to take hold of the hope, or at least take hold of the hope in its fullness. 
Here in Psalm 51, we have a heart which has woken up to the reality that it has been participating in and a heart that's awake to reality is a heart that God can heal. In this psalm, David recognises that his transgressions are not just a moment of selfishness, they're not just uh, self-indulgence, they're not the result of a momentary loss of judgement or a bad decision that can easily be plastered over, you know, fixed up and moved on from and just left in the dusty archives of history, but they're actually an offence against God. And they need to be seen and understood as that. And perhaps one of the great failings of our age is that we've lost sight of just how repugnant sin is to God. After all, uh, we've actually done a pretty good job in the Western world, or at least the postmodern Western world, of whitewashing sin altogether. In terms of the postmodern worldview, we're talking a lot about this at night time at the moment, uh, we've pretty much defined sin out of existence because there's no such thing as objective truth anymore, so what you do is fine for you and what I do is fine for me. What's sin in that context? It's nothing, it's meaningless. Who am I to say that what you or I are doing is right or wrong? There's no absolutes, no imperatives, just the code that I live by that sort of works for me. But before the joy of reconciliation with God, there needs to be the pain of reconciliation with reality. And our unwillingness to expose ourselves to the latter often barricades us from experiencing the former. Our unwillingness to engage with the reality and seriousness of our situation precludes us from experiencing the liberation and wonderful blessing of reconciliation with God. To put that another way, the starting point for intimacy with God expressed through the Psalms begins with feeling the painful tension between our desire for relationship with God and our tendency to grieve the one who persistently loves and blesses us. Uh, let me put it an even simpler way. The starting point for relationship with God is penitence. And we see this dynamic at work right through this psalm because David's realisation of and confession of his sinfulness is married to a deep desire for relationship with God. He knows that his actions have put a terrible barrier between himself and God, but everything in this psalm expresses David's desire to rebuild that relationship. And the beautiful message of this psalm, of the psalms as a collection, is that when we come to God having arrived at that place, when we realise ultimately our rebellion and our tendency to rule and reign our own lives is ultimately rebellion against God, as David did, we move from lamenting the consequences of our sin to lamenting sin itself, then God can bring us into that deeper, more meaningful relationship where we feel where we understand, where we know, where we experience that intimacy that we desire. We're going to finish uh, with a couple of songs in just a few moments, but I'm going to invite you to read with me this psalm again. Charity's going to throw it up onto the screen again. Uh, this time you can remain seated. Uh, but let's read it again, this time through the lens of what we've just heard and worship God using these words. If these words are capturing something of your experience, then let the scripture actually articulate what there is in your heart. 
And as always, the invitation today is if there's things that you want to deal with, if there's stuff that needs to be made right, if there's reconciliation that you need to do with others or with God, there's people here today who will be glad to experience that with you in prayer after the service. But let's read this together as our team comes ready to lead us again in, in worship by song. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear the joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of the righteous. With burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Amen.